One of the things that uh, was a privilege in my uh, early married life was I not only met my wife at seminary, um, but we got to graduate together. Uh, We graduated together from Dallas Seminary, and uh, Chuck Swindoll was the president of the seminary at that time. Uh, And on graduation day, we had our caps and gowns, the whole rig, and he called us into this side room, uh, a couple hundred of us, and he said, I don't want to preach at you, I just want to talk to you for a minute. And he probably talked, typical preacher wanted to talk for a minute, and he probably talked for 20, but I I don't remember much of what he said, but this has never left me. He said, so listen, I want you guys to know this. God is not looking for people who want to be famous for him. He said, there's no shortage there. But God is looking for people who are willing to be anonymous for him. People who are willing to roll up their sleeves and walk into the world, into the highways and byways of life, going wherever he leads them, doing whatever he tells them to do, and being willing to do it anonymously. That really impacted me, and I've never forgotten it. That's what I'd like to look at with you this morning. The writer of the book of Proverbs says, the Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your word, O God. We entreat your favor with all of our hearts. Be gracious to us according to your word this morning, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So, uh, I'm not only filling in for Pastor Jim this morning, but once next month, and once again in November, and I decided rather than just three sort of kind of disjointed messages, I try to do something with a little continuity. Uh, So we're going to look at this idea of being uh, anonymous for God. Today it's the disciples' illustration of the problem. Next month it'll be Abraham moving toward a solution, and then in November it'll be Jonathan, that is Jonathan of the Old Testament, um, illustration of the solution. So this morning we're going to be in Mark 9 and in John chapter 13. So uh, going to be a lot of text, a lot of storyline going on, but you know, hang in there with me, I hope, uh, at least through this Mark 9. And when we get to uh, John 13, I feel like uh, some of this will really start to come together for you. Mark chapter 9 and verse 2 says this, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain. Uh, This is in the very northern part of Israel. If you were to look at a map, not just of ancient Israel, but modern-day Israel, uh, in the northeast corner, the far northeast corner, there's a portion of Israel where if if the border came straight across east to west, it would stop here. But there's a portion that sticks up, uh, and at the very top of that portion, if it were were water, we'd call it a peninsula, uh, at the very top of that is a mountain called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the highest peak in that part of the world, uh, snow-capped a lot of the year. Uh, It's the only ski resort in Israel. Only I would know that, right? And and that's where this happens. Jesus takes with him uh, Peter, James, and John, and they go up onto, uh, probably not to the heights of Mount Hermon, but up on one of the uh, plateaus on Mount Hermon, and Peter, James, and John are privileged to be present for what we call the transfiguration. Jesus is transformed into what he looks like or will look like in his glorified state post-crucifixion. He's 
The scripture says, as white as snow. And then, if that weren't enough, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. And in talking about what goes on, Peter seems to babble and he says, Lord, it's good that we're here with you because we can build a shelter. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And if you read Mark 9 carefully, you see that Peter basically says this because he's so intimidated, so frightened that he doesn't know what to do. He's blown away by the specter. And who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be? But it's what happens when they come down from Mount Hermon that's really interesting. Peter, James, and John went along with Jesus. That means the other nine stayed down at the foot of the hill. And I want us to begin right now, read uh, verses 14 through 17, and start to get a, an idea of what happened while uh, the four were up on the mountain. Look at verse 14. And when he came to the disciples, that's Jesus came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes disputing with them. Wow, way up there in northern Israel, somehow the scribes found them. And they're talking to the nine that have been left behind. Verse 15. Immediately when they see him, that is Jesus, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Paraphrase. What are you talking to my disciples about? What's up? What are you trying to do? Verse 17. Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher... I brought you my son who has a mute spirit and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. They could not. And now we're going to find out exactly why they could not. Jesus had given them power to cast out demons, power to do things in his name, but they were not able to do this. They're not able to cast out the demon. The complete biblical library um, talking about this specific incident here in Mark chapter 9 says this, and I think they're very much on the right track. It says, though Mark does not state why the scribes were questioning the disciples, we would gather that they were maliciously and gleefully ridiculing the nine for their failure to heal the boy possessed by an evil spirit. Yes, yes. The scribes, and I'm sure it went a little bit like this. What's up? I, th- I thought you guys followed Jesus. You know, I thought you could do anything. I thought you could, you know, cleanse lepers and make blind men see and make lame men walk and so why can't you cast out this demons oh that's right that's right the real apostles are up on the hill with jesus you guys are the second string that's why something along those lines and notice jesus reaction when he hears that the nine were unable to cast out the demon from the boy. Verse 19, he he answered him, that is the boy's father, and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Now at first glance, it seems like Jesus' words are directed to the boy's father, but they are not. 
the words are directed to his disciples, the nine. And he says, oh, faithless generation, how long do I have to be with you? How long do I have to put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. As a matter of fact, if we looked at the synoptic translation, because this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if we looked at Luke 9 and Matthew 17, Jesus actually says, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? He calls his disciples, the nine, believers. That Yes, they're believers. Of course they are. Yes, they have eternal life. He says to them, you, you faithless and perverted generation. How long do I have to tolerate you? Strong words, extremely strong words. Extremely. And again, directed at the disciples. I was reading uh, this morning early, I was reading John Calvin's take on this. And Calvin says, some have attributed Jesus directing these words to the scribes, but that is mistaken. Calvin says, these words are directed to the nine disciples. And as a consequence of their failure, Jesus is basically, and I'm paraphrasing Calvin's words now, Jesus is basically telling them that they're no better than the unbelieving and perverted world all around them. In fact, they're part of it. What a sad commentary. What a sad commentary. So Jesus says, bring the boy to me. Verse 20. Then they brought him to him, brought the boy to Jesus. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he said, so I'm sorry, so he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Verse 22, and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What a great answer. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Kind of an amazing story, isn't it? And it answers, as you read the narrative, a lot of questions get answered, but then more questions pop up. Jesus is obviously really annoyed with the nine, um, but exactly why? Is it just because they couldn't cast out the demon, or was it why they couldn't cast out the demon? Notice what... um, One commentator says, uh, his name is Hendrik Vanderloos. In his excellent book called The Miracles of Jesus, he says this, it is not too bold to presume that during the absence of Jesus and his three intimates, a spirit of unbelief had overcome the disciples. Partly, perhaps, 
as a result of conversations between them leading to their spiritual impotence. So Vanderloos is suggesting something was going on among the nine while Jesus was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. There was something going on that drained them of any spiritual power that they would have had. What would it be? I want to suggest to you in this note, and this is me, while Jesus is on the mountain with his three intimates, the nine are engulfed in a spirit of envy and jealousy that says, what about us? The scribes, <laughs> you guys, the nine, you guys, you really are the second stringers, aren't you? The first string's up on the mountain with Jesus. And they don't like that. It doesn't bring out the best in them. It brings out the worst in them. So, and I'm theorizing a bit here, but I really think this is what happened. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? You think we're the second string? Well, watch what we can do with this demon. (laughs) And what were they able to do? Nothing. And their actions and words while Jesus is away basically say, what about us? How come we couldn't be up on the mountain too? But Jesus' stinging rebuke in verse 19 says, it's not about you. How long do I have to tolerate you? How long do I have to put up with you? When are you going to realize it's not about you? How about us? Do we realize that? Do I realize that? hope I do. It's fourth quarter. If I don't learn it soon, I can never learn this lesson too soon in life. It's not about us, guys. Now, as the narrative continues, what we're going to see here is what I'm calling proof of the problem. The root of the problem overshadowing everything that's happened here is going to be revealed in verses 33 and following. I'm sorry, verse 30 and following. Notice as we read, beginning of verse 30. Remember, they're in the very northern tip of Israel, way up by Mount Hermon. So they're going to start walking south. They're going to go back to Galilee, to the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, Lake Gennesaret. I've never seen a body of water with so many different names. They're heading back down there and to the town, Peter's hometown, Jesus' adopted hometown of Capernaum, right on the Sea of Galilee. So they got about a two- to three-day walk. And verse 30 picks up the narrative as they've started on that journey south to Galilee. Verse 30. When they had departed from there and passed through Galilee, then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. Sorry. And he, that is Jesus, didn't want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you were disputing among yourselves on the road? So coming out of the incident at the foot of Mount Hermon with the deaf and mute demon possessing this boy... They have this long walk ahead of them, and the argument, whatever it was, continues. 
And Jesus decides once they get to Capernaum, they get in the house, he's going to put his finger on it once and for all. He asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? Verse 34, but they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. There it is. There it is. The root of the problem. The root of the whole thing. Verse 35, and he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. One of my seminary professors used to say it this way, The way up in the Christian life is down. It's not like the world. It's the exact opposite of the world. The world, you step on anybody you have to, you climb the ladder, you do what you have to. The way is up. Here in the Christian life, the greatest, those who would be the greatest are the servants of all and the slaves of all. Boy, does that go against the grain. Boy, does that go against my fleshly nature. And here it crops up in the disciples and Jesus isn't going to tolerate it. If anyone desires to be the first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You guys are supposed to be the 12 apostles. Well, right now you're the dirty dozen. But it can't continue this way. It can't continue this way. And tragically, this is an argument that's still going on in the church of Jesus Christ. It's an argument that isn't taking place just among uh, lay folks, but it's with pastors, it's with leaders. It happens at different levels throughout the church. But rivalry, envy, jealousy, lust for influence, lust for recognition, all those things are probably the greatest battle that we fight as believers. And I think that's why Swindoll's words have never left me. And I've tried through my own life to confront this same spirit in myself. The problem in a nutshell, and we, we don't think of it this way. And I almost took this out last night because it seems a little strong. But here it is. The problem in a nutshell is people like you and like me who want to use the church of Jesus Christ and the name of Jesus Christ to make a name for ourselves. Now, we don't think of it that way. So that seems too harsh, and I get that. But that really is the root of the problem. We would never say it like that, and we don't even think of it like that, but that's what comes up, that's what boils up in our fleshly nature that is still with all of us. The disciples, um, I kind of left this out, but we're going to back up a little bit. The disciples, after things calm down a little bit, but before they start walking back, to Galilee, the disciples go up to Jesus, Mark 9 and verse 28, verses 28 and 29. Notice this. The disciples, this is the nine that couldn't cast a demon out, asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. I.e., is that what you guys were doing when I was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, praying and fasting? No. Arguing, 
starting rivalries, saying, what, what about me? What about me? Jerry Vines, Dr. Jerry Vines, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, says this, in the present age, I'm sorry, in the present passage, we see them arguing with one another about who was going to be the greatest. Probably this particular discussion was precipitated by the fact that Peter, James, and John had witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. You can imagine how they must have felt. Did they come back down from the mountain with an air of superiority? I'm sure that all three of them were confident in their minds that they were going to be the greatest. Who could witness something like the transfiguration and think, wow, we've arrived. We're it. I'm sure that all three of them were convinced in their minds they were going to be the greatest. Understandably, the other disciples weren't too happy about that prospect. And that starts the tragic argument among them. Who would be the greatest? And here's what's most tragic about it, guys. It continues until the very end of Jesus' life on earth. Fast forward to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, it is the day of, the evening of, what we call the Last Supper. Notice uh, verse 1, John thir- beginning in John 13, 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended... And the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself. Verse 5, after that he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And for most of my Christian life, and even before I was a believer, but still active in a church, I always took this in isolation, this, the foot washing incident at the Last Supper. I just thought this is something Jesus had always just planned on doing, and it was just to demonstrate uh, that whoever would be the greatest of all must be the servant of all. And it is that. It absolutely is that. But I never realized how much was behind it. You see, if you were to go ahead, and I uh, trust you eager beaver Bible students to do this, uh, go ahead and read Luke chapter 22, which is basically the story of Jesus telling the disciples everything they have to do to prepare for the Last Supper. You'll see in Luke chapter 22 and 24 these words. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. On the very day before Jesus is crucified, this argument is still going on among them. I like what Dr. Merrill Tenney says, because again, he plugs into exactly what's going on here. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, Dr. Merrill Tenney says, the immediate situation was that they had come to the banquet room directly from the street. Ordinarily, on such an occasion the host would have delegated a servant to the menial task of removing the sandals of the guests and washing their feet. Since the meeting was obviously intended to be secret, no servants were present. 
none of the disciples were ready to volunteer for such a task, for it would have been considered an admission of inferiority to all the others. See what's going on behind Jesus doing the foot washing? The very day that they're getting ready to celebrate the Passover, the Last Supper with Jesus, the argument's still going on as to who's the greatest. Probably on their way to meet Jesus in the upper room, the argument's going on. Who's going to be the greatest? So when they get there, and as Merrill Tenney says, normally in the ancient world, uh, the host would have provided a servant to wash everyone's feet. There's no servant to wash the feet. Do you really think, with that kind of an argument going on among them, that any of the 12 of them are going to volunteer to do that? Of course not. Of course not. And interestingly, John tells us, so why did Jesus do it? Well, it says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, he knows he's going to cross the next day, that he had come from God, was returning to God because he knew what he knew, he did what he did. What a sobering reminder for us. Guys, we're here for a visit, a really short visit. We've come from God, we're returning to God. And what he's and by by taking the role of the servant and washing the disciples' feet, Jesus is basically pointing out to them, you guys are dirty people with dirty attitudes. Your dirty feet symbolize your dirty attitudes. So let me wash them for you because you won't wash them for each other. Wow. After spending three years eating, sleeping, listening to, seeing every miracle that Jesus performed, what a humbling rebuke that would be. I'm reminded by way of application of what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. He says, let this mind, we were talking about that before, let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who though he was God, took the form of a servant, and listen to this, guys, counted himself of no reputation. God in human flesh counted himself as no reputation. He didn't care about his reputation. Charles Henry McIntosh said this in regard to that passage in Philippians 2, and I love this. He said, since we serve a master, a Lord and master, who made himself of no reputation, how can we possibly seek one for ourselves? How can we possibly be so concerned with our reputation that we exalt ourselves instead of humbling ourselves? Wouldn't you think that on the last... See, at this point, if it's me, if I'm in Jesus' place, heaven forbid, if I was in Jesus' place, I'd say, it's still going on? Who among you is the greatest? (laughs) I've had it with you guys. Going back to Exodus 20, I'm going to do what Moses suggested that God do. I'm just going to wipe you out and find some other guys and start over. I can't handle it anymore. Wouldn't you think on the very last night of his life, knowing what was coming the next day, and these guys are his best friends, not just his disciples, his best friends, wouldn't you think Jesus would have the right to say, listen, guys, tonight, at least for tonight, it's all about me. (laughs) Wouldn't he? Seriously? 
Yeah, I would think so. Especially knowing what's coming. Do you guys know what's going to happen to me tomorrow? And you're arguing over who, who's the greatest among you. Do you know what's going to happen? By way of application. Ever been upset when, number one, somebody else was chosen for something over you? Maybe to speak, maybe to lead, maybe to sing, to do whatever. How'd you react? Ever been upset when someone else's ministry was recognized over yours? What am I, second string? I, uh, we helped with that too. How come we didn't get a mention? Ever been upset when someone was thanked and you weren't? How come their name's in the bulletin? How come their name's in the annual report? I had something to do with that. Here's one that ought to hit home. Coming from a Baptist church planning background, it really hits home for Janine and I. Ever been upset when you lost a vote? You know why there's a first Baptist church in every single town? Because there's also a second Baptist church. (laughs) Somebody lost a vote. Should it really go that way? Should losing a vote lead to second Baptist church? Are we that fragile? Are we that egocentric? Ever been upset when reaching out to the community seems more important than reaching out to you? I'll never forget when uh, we were living in Portland, Oregon, and I was uh, finishing uh, a seminary degree. Janine's aunt and uncle came over from Australia. Um, By the way, I have a B-A-W, beautiful Australian wife. (laughs) Um, her aunt and uncle came over from Australia and her uncle started talking about his church in Australia about a year before they had hired a new pastor, a younger guy, very outreach minded, very, very much into reaching the community. And her uncle, I mean, I was a bit astounded by what he said, but I had to admire him for his honesty. He goes, you know what? And week after week after week, all I hear is we got to reach out. What about the lost people? What about all the people out there that don't know Christ? What about them? What about them? What about, he goes, what about me? He goes, I'm here every week. I put money in that offering plate every week. What about me? And being a young, at that time, outreach-minded kind of pastor, I was like, are you serious? (laughs) But I get it a little better now. I do. I do. Here's the question I want to close with, guys, just to throw it out there. Most Christians will say it's not about me. How many live it? How many really live it? And let me give you an illustration. Um, I've been a pastor uh, until a few years ago. I've been, I've been a pastor for 16 years. And for about eight of those 16 years, I worked as a church health consultant. Uh, evangelism being my specialty. I worked for a group called Church Health Ministries. And 
My experience is this. When, when pastors, unemployed pastors, visit a church, any church, the first thing that the pastor of the church thinks is, oh my gosh, no. No. And they come, you find out who they are, and as they're leaving, you go up and you warmly shake their hand and you say, thank you so much for visiting. It was great to meet you. Be warm, be filled, and in the quietness of your mind, think, and be gone. <laughs> and you know why? It's not that you want to be mean. It's not that you don't appreciate who they are and, and what, you know, what, what they've done with their life. It's because typically, not all the time, but typically, an unemployed pastor in your church means problems. It does. Sometimes little problems, sometimes big problems, but problems. And as a pastor, you know, I've already got enough of those. I don't need any more. And so, we say that. To my shame, I admit to you, I have done that. Be warm, be filled, and be gone. More than once, huh? That's why... At age 60, I had something happen to me that not many Christians have. See, by the time you're 60 years of age and you've been a Christian for a while, you've got a handful of heroes, uh, men or women of God who have deeply affected your life. I had about five. The three greatest ones have all gone home to be with the Lord in the last five, five six years. So I was down to two. I've got a new one. He's not here today. He and his wife are away. If I were him, I would have never been as warm and welcoming to me coming here as he was. Much less invite me and my family to live in his home. Guys, let me tell you, that doesn't happen. Or, no, it rarely happens. Because unemployed pastors in your church mean problems. You have enough of those. So I got a new hero at age 60. Not because of the benefit that came. And the benefit was huge. Not because of that at all. But because of the spiritual encouragement. Because of coming out of the last church that we were in. And um, not feeling very spiritually right. It encouraged my socks off. I was like, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. It almost never is. Good for you. Good for you, Jim. How about you? How about me? Father, help us to ask ourselves this week, am I part of the problem or am I part of the solution? This coming week, am I going to exalt your name or am I going to try to exalt mine? This coming week, am I going to actively and selflessly serve others or am I going to expect to be served? Lord, give us the courage and the spiritual insight to be willing to be anonymous for you, knowing knowing that those who are not have their reward already. But if, if we serve you anonymously, our praise will come when it really counts. When we stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
give us the wisdom and the courage to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.